pick up where we left off last time and get a little more clarity about um, the heart of the gospel and the main subject of the gospel. And I want to begin uh, tonight by doing just a little bit of review, starting with this. Who would like to attempt just a very simple definition of the two key words of this class, evangelism and apologetics? What are those things? Define them, just real quick. Very short. Jesse? Teacher's pet. Yeah, either one. Okay. Or both. Um, evangelism is spreading the gospel. Apologetics is setting up a defense for the gospel. Okay, good. Simple, right? Spreading or proclaiming the gospel. Uh, evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. Apologetics is defending the gospel. Good. So this class is about the proclamation and defense of the gospel. Now, with regard to purpose, uh, last time we were talking about the purpose of these two disciplines, evangelism and apologetics. What is the unifying, overarching purpose of both evangelism and apologetics? Where's Lee? What is it? You want the one that I gave? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) He's scared that. He's like, last time you slapped me down. No. The unifying, overarching purpose. I was trying to set you up so you're safe. Like, oh yeah, glory of God is the end of all things, right? Okay, so now, in in not contradistinction, but in distinction to that, what is the more immediate purpose of these two disciplines? So let's talk about the immediate purpose of evangelism. What's that? What's the immediate? Yeah, the overarching purpose is to bring glory to God. What's the immediate purpose of evangelism? Okay, bringing people to Christ. How are they going to hear unless they, they got a preacher going to them, proclaimer, uh, someone like us to go in and uh, bring the gospel? What about apologetics? I, I actually gave you three purposes, immediate purposes of apologetics last time. What do you, can anybody name one of them in your own words? I'm sorry? Teaching. Yeah, good. Teaching us to side with God in the face of opposition. I, I kind of would boil that down to the word loyalty. Where do our loyalties lie? Do our loyalties lie with sinful humanity or with perfect deity? Do our loyalties lie with, um, you know, people that, uh, you know, stir our affections and emotions and sentiment, or like our children, <laughs> like our parents, like our loved ones, or does God matter the most to us? Okay, so that's, uh, that's one Uh, purpose, immediate purpose of of, uh, apologetics is to teach us to side with God or the word loyalty. What's another one? Clarifying our understanding. Okay, good. Clarifying our understanding. And I would boil that down to the word conviction. Mm -hmm. So helping us to grow in conviction about the things that we believe. When we do apologetics, it strengthens our faith. Um, I'm going to make a distinction in this over the course here between what I would call evidential apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. I'm in a favor, presuppositional approach. You're gonna hear some of that tonight. But the evidential approach uh, does provide us with evidences. It does provide us with things that do strengthen our faith. And so there's a lot to learn from that, uh, that approach as well. So when we do apologetics, it strengthens our faith, deepens our convictions in the truth. We want to come to understand scripture well enough to be conversant with it, and to be able to use this as a tool, uh, use the Bible as a tool, and actually work it out in our speech, work it out in our conversation. So that's wisdom deepening our conviction. 
What's another, a third purpose? Those two purposes have to do with the effect of apologetics on us. What about one more, an effect of apologetics on the person we're talking to? It convicts the conscience of an unbeliever. Great. Convicts the conscience of an unbeliever. Jesus told his apostles, John 16, 8 through 11, When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How does he do that but through our witness, through our testimony, through our, even our apologetic? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come and demonstrate through believers what righteousness looks like, bring conviction on that basis. And then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So if the ruler is judged, well, guess what's going to happen to all who follow the ruler of this world? They're going to be judged too. So we're bringing conviction to the conscience through our witness. When we engage in defending the faith, we are reasoning with the unbeliever. And we're doing so in a way that needs to be uh, faithful to a biblical pattern of reasoning. If we put it simply... Our apologetic should expose the unbeliever's departure from God, okay? So we want to expose that in our conversation with an unbeliever, that they have departed from God. We do not want to let them off the hook on this point, uh, not because we're not nice, but because we're loving. We want to help them understand this. And then our evangelism comes in to explain uh, and proclaim to them the God before whom they must bow. The God with whom they have to do so. But notice that in either case, whether we are proclaiming or defending the gospel, the starting point in our conversation is not the sinner. The starting point is God. The God with whom they have to do. We want to introduce them to God. We want to proclaim God. We want to teach them about God. Everything is God-centered, even the conversation with the unbeliever. Okay? There's a set of verses in the Proverbs, and I want you to turn there in Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26. This set of verses, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, lay out a faithful approach uh, to engaging the unbeliever. As we engage in reasoning with unbelievers and staying faithful to our God, this approach is going to help us to be faithful to God, be God-centered in our conversation, and help to uh, expose the unbelievers' departure from God. This is how we call unbelievers to repentance. We want to help them forsake their sinful thinking on the one hand and turn to God on the other hand. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 helps us with that approach um, to the evangelistic and apologetic task. Now, I'm going to read this. Follow along in your Bibles, whatever version you have. I'm going to read this out of the NAS because I think that this NAS, uh, I like the translation here. It first says in Proverbs 26, 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Verse 5 sounds like a contradiction. It's really not. But it says in verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly. Or the NAS says, answer a fool as his folly deserves. That gets at the idea. Lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay? So don't answer a fool according to his folly that is, don't engage in reasoning with him in the way he reasons. Don't reason the way he reasons. There is a difference between you and the unbeliever. Difference between you and the fool. Okay? You don't want to be like him. You don't want to engage in foolish thinking. That's, verse, that's the warning of verse 4. Verse 5 says, 
answer a fool as his folly deserves. That is, not, it's not a matter of like, yeah, slap him down, be unkind. No, it's saying answer a fool according to his folly. That is, expose his foolish thinking for what it is, lest he go away from the conversation and say, this Christianity has nothing to offer. This Christianity doesn't mean anything. No, they can't think that, and we need to help them to see that. So it's a twofold, two-step approach to the apologetic task. First, let's talk about, and we're going to talk about this for a while, because we need to make some uh, definition and clarification about the nature of a fool. Proverbs 26.4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. As, I, as I've said, the Bible is not engaging in unkindness here, in name-calling by referring to the unbeliever as a fool or his reasoning as folly. It's just stating a fact. Rebellious reasoning is folly. It's foolishness. It leads to futility. It's, it ha- it's a dead end. And so to continue down a road that leads you to a dead end in your life is the definition of foolishness. It's folly. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about fools and their folly. More than 70 times, Proverbs provides instructions and warnings about fools. If you do a search on the word folly, it adds another 20-some references, almost 100 references on fools and their folly. In fact, turn, you're there in Proverbs, back up a little bit. We're going to walk through all 100 or so of those references. I'm just kidding. We're not going to... We're not going to do that, but um, just some of them. But he re- Solomon re- repeatedly warns about the danger of fools and their folly. He says in Proverbs, you don't need to turn here, I'll tell you when to turn, but you can go to chapter 12. That's where we're going to start. But uh, he says in Proverbs 17, 12, let a, man, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. So you want to watch out, okay? And that's because folly is destructive. The way of folly leads to nothing but ruin. Proverbs 14.1 warns against foolish, foolish women, a woman who is foolish and destroys her home with her hands. And then there's another one that talks about a man who is foolish. It says when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, he doesn't stop at that point. He doesn't reflect on his, the error of his ways. He doesn't repent Proverbs 19.3 finishes the thought, instead of when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It rages against the Lord. That is so foolish. Because his departure from the Lord that led to the ruination of his life in the first place, it's all his fault, not God's fault. If he would have stuck with God's truth, his life would have led to blessing. Okay, Now that the ruin has happened, just as God warned he's going to blame God for it, that's folly. So I want to consider there, there are a lot of ways we could uh, categorize the fool in Proverbs and just want to consider two categories of fools and their folly. First, how fools think. And secondly, how fools um, speak. How their thinking shows up in their speech. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we're going to start with the diagnosis of the heart, the thinking, which is something that God sees very clearly and he puts here on the pages of scripture to help us understand it. He warns us about it. Starting 
there in Proverbs 12 and verse 15. Here's how fools think, the folly of their thinking. It says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In other words, wise men are teachable. Wise people are teachable people. Fools, not teachable, but they're proud and they're self-assured instead. They're wise in their own eyes. Go to Proverbs 14, verse 18. Well, you'll be going back and forth a little bit. But Proverbs 14, 18 says, The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. When it says that, it's not speaking about the folly of fools being deceiving to other people, even though that's true. It says it's, it's talking about being self-deceiving, self-deception. Notice the contrast there, because the wise person, he is able to think through his own way. He's able to discern. He's able to act consistently with his thinking. His outer life corresponds with his inner life, not the fool. The fool, his own folly is self-deceiving, and he doesn't understand the connection between what he thinks and how he actually lives. Yeah? Can you just verify that address? Is it uh, Proverbs 14, 18? What's that? 14, 8? Okay, I just wrote it down wrong. Sorry about that. 14, 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Is that right? Good. So the fool, his folly is self-deceiving, and you need to understand that principle, that when you're talking to a fool, a.k.a. an unbeliever, they're self-deceived, okay? You need to understand that. 14.24, I hope this reference is right. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly, okay? That is when fools put their heads together, when there is a colloquium of fool, fools and their foolishness, like let's think about a university setting or a political setting or whatever, a rally. They only produce more folly, Folly begets folly. You don't start with folly and end up with wisdom. Okay? Proverbs 15, 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. There is a divide between the wise and the foolish. They are on an entirely different trajectory of thinking. The wise seek knowledge. And when we're talking about knowledge here, we're talking about the knowledge of God. Not just any knowledge, not just facts. We're talking about the knowledge of God. Fools, on the other hand, they feed on folly, which is defined as rejection from God's truth. They feed on that. They swallow it whole. They digest it. They crave more and more folly. Folly begets folly. Proverbs 15, 21. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. That is to say, it tastes good. They love it. Since they feed on folly and they immerse themselves in foolish thinking, folly is what provides them with great, great joy. Okay? Um, it's, I think I mentioned to you um, a book I read about a liberal scholar who in his 40s became a Christian. And he, he actually admitted in the book, I loved heresy. He loved it. It was intoxicating to him. It filled him with joy and, and satisfaction. It was exciting. It was exciting to see the new frontiers of theology and how we could define God in, in an evolutionary way as a, our own understanding. He loved that. 
Fools love their folly. It's a joy to him who lacks sense. Proverbs 16, 21. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. Okay, again, that is to say, don't expect the teaching of a fool to be a fountain of life. Did I get that wrong too? 16, 22. Missed it by one. Missed it by one. I was really, I was 10 verses off last time. 16, 22. Thanks for, your, thanks for your grace and patience. And <laughs> the point is, <laughs> don't expect the teaching of a fool to be a fountain of life. The instruction of fools, and listen, even if they hold PhDs, it's just more folly, okay? I, I'm not trying to put down PhDs. I really love people who have education and, and learning and understanding, but there are many educated fools. There are many very kind, nice, uh, gracious, kind, just fun-loving fools. But they're fools. If they, if they depart from the truth of God, they're on a foolish bent from the very beginning. And we need to recognize that. Their instruction is a source of folly. So what is folly? Here's a, here's a definition you can write down. It's not maybe the best or the only definition, but it's a, one I think is helpful. Folly is thinking, reasoning, and living apart from the revealed word of God. Folly is thinking, reasoning, and living apart from the revealed word of God. I'm going to make that case better in a moment, but for now, if you just grant me that definition, folly is thinking, reasoning, and living apart from the revealed word of God, then we understand there are a lot of people in that category, aren't there? Biblically speaking... The fool is synonymous with the unbeliever, okay? Again, I need to emphasize this. It is not like just a flippant insult to call, to biblically speak of somebody in the category of fool. We're talking about somebody who is an unbeliever, okay? Because they're, they're, they're thinking, reasoning, and they're living. The way they live and speak and behave, everything is dominated by non-truth, non-truth, non-reality, when you live that way, when you live according to fantasy and idolatry, it leads to absolute failure. It leads to futility. That's why it's called folly. That's why it's called foolishness. So with folly dominating the thought life, affecting the reasoning, affecting the entire direction of the life, we're going to see that folly show up in what fools say, what they talk about, what they speak about. Fools reveal their folly through their speech patterns. So we can, we can spot this. And this is what we, I hope in this course, as we kind of go through some of these principles over the spring, I hope that you become more discerning in your ability to spot foolish conversation, foolish thinking through words. And I'm telling you, you do not need to be a rocket scientist or have a PhD or whatever to be able to get this. You're going to get this. You're going to hear it for yourself. Here's, uh, here's some Proverbs. Go back to, I hope, Proverbs 9.13. <clears throat> Proverbs 9.13. 9.13. I've got a Bible here. I wrote them all down. but Yeah, this is the one. So it says, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. The woman folly. So, the, again, just like, 
the woman wisdom is personified. A woman is person, or wisdom is personified as a woman in chapter eight. Folly is also personified uh, as a woman here in chapter nine. She's loud. She's brash. She's an opinionated person. Here personified as a woman, but that could be a man. That this this person is folly incarnate, loud, brash, opinionated, has has something to say about everything. Okay? Go to Proverbs 12, 23. 12, 23. That's the one. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. That is to say, they have no restraint. They can't keep it in. There's no discretion. Just opinionated nonsense coming out. And when I say opinionated, I really do mean non-fact-based things that they say. Comes out all the time. We're going to spot this again and again. Things that people say, opinions that they offer, and they have no facts to back it up. No study, no, especially when they start talking about the Bible. Hear how many opinions start flowing. Okay? Opinionated nonsense. Proverbs 15.2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. You get the picture there of a spigot, right? That's just only one setting. And it just pours out. Pours out. No restraint, but this tongue of the wise... It's discriminating. It's careful. I love this one, Proverbs 18.2. 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You ever heard this? Whenever I find people that ask no questions of you, no, seek no understanding, they only take pleasure in telling you what they think, they're opinionated, brash, arrogant. That is a telltale sign of a fool. Proverbs 18:7. A fool's mouth is his ruin. And get this, his lips are a snare to his soul. In other words, we can discern between the wise and the fool, between the believer and the unbeliever by what they say, by how they speak. The conversation tells all. Okay? Because the fool is unable to control his speech. His mouth is walking into ruin all the time. His lips are a snare to his own soul. He is caught every time. Okay? Now, we need to understand, uh, lest we become wise in our own eyes and act like a fool, um, we are all born into folly. Because we're not born believers, are we? We're not born Christians. We're born as unbelievers. We're conceived in sin. We're born sinners. We prove our condition over and over by then what? Sinning. I don't know about any of your parents out there, but I've had five kids. Only that I never had to teach one of them how to sin. We sometimes demonstrated how to sin, but we never taught them. They just figured that out all by themselves. And that's why Proverbs 22.15 warns and instructs parents, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The rod of discipline. I think that's a metaphor, but it is an interesting metaphor that we're not talking just about timeouts here. 
The rod of discipline is a metaphor, and sometimes a timeout is what's needed. But other times it takes a rod. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> but listen, unless we are born again, unless we're born again, we're going to remain in a foolish condition. And that brings us to the most common kind of fool that we're going to meet in any evangelistic or apologetic encounter, which is your run-of-the-mill, average Joe variety fool. Most fools that we meet, most unbelievers we meet, they seem like very nice, reasonable people. And they're that way as long as you don't press them on anything. It's when we get into conversations with them. When we start to press the demands of the gospel, that's when you see their folly show itself. If they continue in their rejection, they're fools. They are fools. The height of folly is to deny God, right? We read that this morning in Psalm 14.1. Uh, do you, anybody know, you, I read Psalm 14 this morning in, in uh, uh, worship service. Anybody know the psalm that corresponds to that? It's almost, it's almost a word for word. Is it 54? Close. 53. Yeah. <laughs> You're just off by one, Doug. <laughs> All the best people. I, I know how you feel, though, so. Yeah. Just missed it by that much, right? <laughs> The, uh, but it says there in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. That's, that's true philosophically, as with what we have today. We see secular atheism. It's true religiously, like those in Isaiah 44. If you jot down Isaiah 44 and see the portrayal of idolatry there, um, those who bow before an idol, which is actually no God at all, that's the same thing. That's saying in their heart there is no Elohim, there is no God. But it's also true, practically speaking, as with many today in our modern world who live as if God did not exist. And when I, when I speak that way, I'm speaking in a broad category, and I speak especially of religious people. There are many, even going to churches, who live their lives and they think their thoughts, and reason, all their reasonings, as if God did not exist. This applies to them, because they're saying in their heart, there's no God I'm accountable to. There is no God who commands my daily life. There is, a, there is no God that commands the way I should think and not think. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, both written by David, they're more comprehensive in applying the term fool uh, to anyone that doesn't bow before, get this, they don't bow before the God of Israel. So we're talking about, you know, back in David's day, um, the world was what we call pre-modern, okay? So we're not talking about the modern world and modernism. We're talking about pre-modern people. Pre-modern people were not typically secular atheists. Everybody but then believed in a God. Everybody believed in God's plural, singular, whatever. They were, they were religious people. Make no mistake, people today are religious people. Even if they're secularists, they're still religiously devoted to their secularism. Okay, <laughs> We'll talk more about that as well. But listen, 
David is talking about anybody who says in his heart there is no God. He's talking about anybody who does not bow before the God of Israel. That's the fool in David's writing there. Psalm 53, he uses the term Elohim throughout to talk about God. Psalm 14, he uses that general word for deity, Elohim, but also the personal name of God revealed to Moses, the word Yahweh. Yahweh. So that means anyone who isn't bowing before the God of Israel is a fool, because the fool says in his heart, there is no God, there is no Elohim, there is no Yahweh. Now that the God of Israel has been revealed fully and finally in Jesus Christ, this applies to anybody who rejects Christian theism. Now this is why, I'm just going to stop and rabbit trail here for a second. This is why any apologetic approach that teaches us to go to the unbeliever and accept that they reject any idea of God, any idea of the supernatural, all for them is material reality. Um, matter is all that's eternal. And matter somehow, um, inanimate, lifeless, simple matter became complex, life-producing matter. Okay, so... It's the whole falsity of spontaneous generation. They believe it. They believe life came from non-life. It's the most foolish, ridiculous belief that dominates our entire culture, dominates the entire uh, university system. It's what all of our kids are taught from kindergarten all the way up. Life begot, or non-life begets life. That's the basic lie, okay? Any apologetic system, then, that tries to reason with the unbeliever on that basis and say, look, I just want you to accept that there could be something out there that explains all that we see. And then we, they say, okay, I can see, yeah, I'm going to come to that point. That is not a victory. They are still in their folly. They're still an unbeliever. We, we want to take them from that there could be something out there to... Now there is something out there, a higher power, a, a life force, something out there that's eternal and, and gives rise to everything else. If they accept that, still no good. They're still on the throne of their hearts. If you, if you bring them into, a, into another step that says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that I can believe in godness, deity, there's something out there. I don't know if it's plural, singular, males, masculine and feminine, whatever. There's godness that gave rise to everything else. Not a victory. If you get them to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exclude all other gods and say there's one God. Not good enough. No, because that person will still die and go to hell if they do not accept Christian theism. They need to bow the knee before God as he reveals himself as he really is, which is... God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why the baptismal formula is in the name, singular, of God and Son and Holy, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's why we are setting aside an evidential approach that takes evidences for it's more reasonable to believe this than that. It's, it's, uh, there's more evidence for believing this than that. You know what we're doing when we do that? We're appealing to the unbeliever to make judgment about evidences. We're not calling them to repent of their ungodly thinking and bow and believe in order that they may understand. We're expecting them to understand before they even believe. 
Okay, so that's why we're gonna use this approach. So that's a rabbit trail. People, um, anybody who rejects Christian theism is an unbeliever and by biblical definition, they are a fool. And that's why we look with mourning in our hearts over the Jews who rejected their Messiah. Judaism uh, may use the Old Testament. Let's say even strong Judaism, faithful Judaism, um, is still using the Old Testament. But if they reject Christ, they're in the same category as the Muslim. Same category who also rejects Christ. Okay? So it's not helpful if they don't embrace everything that God says about himself. They are still a fool. Those whose thinking, reasoning, living is unshackled from the revealed word of God, they're all fools. And that's why we say all unbelievers fall in this category of fools and their folly. They're practical atheists, so to speak, because they live, they live their lives by the dictates of their autonomy. Autonomy, autonomos, self-law. That's how they live. It says in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 that their folly leads to corruption, leads to abominable deeds, which is exactly what Paul teaches. Uh, Ephesians 4, unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds. They reason according to their folly, and that folly leads to no good. Okay, it says that in Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. A heart of foolish reasoning, the folly of the fool, it is the suppression of the truth about God that all men know, that all men can clearly see. It's unfolded in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Go ahead and turn there to Romans 1. Let's take a look at that section real quick. Romans 1. We're not going to read that whole uh, introductory section, but I just would like to read just a couple verses there. Romans 1, 18 to 20. It says there, for, um, for the wrath of God. Okay, so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel, it's the very power of God on display. So why should he be ashamed of it? Why should he uh, shrink back from talking about the very power of the God who is on display to save everyone who believes? Why would he, why would he be ashamed of that message? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is, we believe in order to understand Okay, we believe in order to understand God reveals his own righteousness. For the wrath of God, verse 18, here's a, another reason he's not ashamed of the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You got the picture there? They're holding it down. There's like a, a pot boiling over and they're trying to push the lid down and keep it from boiling over, but they can't. The pressure is building and building and building, and they, they muscle that thing down. They tie it up with ropes, and they hold it down, but every now and again, that thing leaks out, and they see it. They understand. They know it's true because of their morally committed to their rebellion. They hold it down. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. How do we know that? Because, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The literal uh, translation of that last sentence, they are without excuse. You know what without excuse is? Without apologetic. 
Okay, you know how in 1 first, uh, first, uh, Peter 3.15, it says that we are to make a defense, we're to give an apology, uh, an apologia? This says they have no apologia. They have no defense. They have no explanation, no reason for why they suppress the truth, for why they, they reject God. They're without excuse. Everything that can be known about God is revealed in creation, revealed in the way they're made, revealed in the way babies are born and all of that. And they see it, but they hold down the truth of what they know. Now, they're not going to admit that to you. They're not going to walk up and say that. They're confused about it themselves. But no matter what your unbelieving friend, neighbor, or family member tells you, God says that all non-Christians are doing this very thing. We either believe God and take him at his word, which is to have the starting point being God, his word explained to us how to view the whole world. We either believe that or we don't. When you talk to an unbeliever, you either believe this or you don't. Okay? We believe it. We believe that they are suppressing the truth just as God says. God has made the truth about himself plain to them. How do we know that? Well, it says it right there. <laughs> it says he has shown it to them. Okay? He's made it plain. His truth is clearly perceived through all the things that have been made, and yet men in their unrighteousness turn away from the truth. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. Okay? Trouble is, the unbeliever can't escape the fact that he is a creature created in the image of God. His creatureliness is what binds him to being in God's world. He's in rebellion, and yet he's in God's world rebelling against God, okay? He's created in God's image. He cannot help but try to understand the world, explain the world he lives in. He can't help but think even uh, according to a rationality. There is a rationality in his thinking. There is an explanation uh, from what he believes to how he behaves. There's rational thinking. He wants to provide a reasonable explanation for the, th the way things are. Every unbeliever has a view of origins. They have a view of the ultimate end. They have a view of what's wrong with the world. They have an opinion or an idea about how to fix it. That is to say that every unbeliever views the world through a lens of a worldview. They reason through the lens of their own worldview. Most of them are just unaware of what that worldview is. They don't know. They haven't been exposed to the thinking that's down inside of them. So it also says, turn the page to Romans 2. Verses 14 and 15, every unbeliever has the imprint of truth inscribed on his heart, okay? It says there in verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, we're talking about non-Jews, they don't have the law of Moses, the prophets, the writings, they don't have a, a Bible that they're living according to. We're talking about barbarians in Germania, you know, before Rome conquered them and stuff like that. They're running around and <clears throat> killing each other and all that. So they don't have the law, and yet... By nature, they do what the law requires. They're a lot of themselves, even though they don't have the law. So even though they don't have the law of Moses, well, guess what? They are living as if the Ten Commandments matter. They, even in their societies, even in their pagan societies, they are living as if you can't take somebody else's stuff that doesn't belong to you. You can't take somebody else's wife. You can't murder. You can't, they have laws, they have rules. We find more and more, you know, things inscribed in ancient history on, you know, in Carchemish and all these other places that we find law codes. So 
they show, verse 15, that the law, the work of the law, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. All right? So they have the law written on their hearts. They have a conscience that either defends or prosecutes them inside. You may not see that. I may not see that. God sees it. And he's going to hold them accountable. It says in verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's, again, Paul convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. There it is right there. So, the unbeliever doesn't discern the law of God perfectly. Why? Because he's suppressing the truth. So there's confusion in his thinking. He can't escape, though, the need to reason according to logical inference. He has to think that way. He has to operate according to the principle of uniformity. He has to operate according to organizing all of reality into class and category so that what happens today isn't totally, completely unconnected and different than what happened yesterday. He understands that if he turns on a faucet and gets clean water out of it yesterday, that that carries over to a good reasonable inference that he's going to get clean water out of that faucet today and tomorrow and the next day. So he operates according to reason, according to inference, according to uniformity, to organization and class and category. The heart of his reasoning is moral reasoning. He's got categories in his heart and his mind of right and wrong, truth and error. He has a sense of should and should not. He's got a sense of ought and ought not. And he thinks that way, not because he's ever taught to, because he can't help it. He's created after the image of God. And he cannot help the thinking according to how he's created. Okay? The unbelieving... Uh, person, the fool, is a thinking, reasoning creature. He's created in God's image, and yet he is not submitted to the, the God who created him. And so that means that he is out of step with God. That means that he is hopelessly inconsistent in his thinking. This makes the unbeliever irretrievably double-minded apart from the grace of God. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He refuses to connect his presuppositions that govern his thought life. He refuses to connect those to what he worships. He refuses to submit himself in obedient faith to God through Jesus Christ. And so he's hopelessly lost. He cannot think or reason correctly. Everything's broken. So we should, we should say this. People are creatures who are living in God's world. Unbelievers are creatures living in God's world, but they're claiming that they're not creatures living in God's world. And yet, it's impossible for them to escape God's world. They cannot escape their creatureliness. They cannot escape the world that they live in. And so, because they can't, they have to borrow from God's truth. They cheat and they steal his thinking, his foundational presuppositions. They steal from Christian theism and they cobble together an inherently incoherent or inconsistent system which is always going to be subject to fertility. It's, it's like introducing a foreign body into, you know, an, a, an alien object into a closed and harmonious system, and that system is eventually going to reject that foreign body as a threat. It just is not going to work, okay? That's why every philosophical system known to man throughout all the ages has ultimately failed because it's subject to fertility. It's subject to, to futility. People are always trying to find absolutes, all the while denying the absolute God who is the source of all absolutes. 
He's the only absolute. God is the only sufficient reason and cause and source of all that we perceive as absolute, like laws of the physical and material world and laws of the spiritual and immaterial world. They've rejected the metaphysical reality of God. They're in bondage then to folly. As it says in the beginning of Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, no fear of the Lord? Okay, no wisdom and instruction either. Those who refuse to fear God, they're remanded to folly and all of its consequences, all of its futility, okay? Apart from bowing the knee to, to God, people are utterly unable to make their rebellion work for them. And I don't mean just in an eternal sense, because eventually they're going to give an account to God. I'm talking about even in a temporal sense. Their, their foolish thinking, not bowing the knee to God, they're not going to make this thing work. Their systems of thinking are going to fail every time, and you watch it happen over a lifetime. You may not see it in their 20s, but you start to see it show up in their 30s, and definitely in their 40s, and by their 50s and 60s, it is a mess. It's a mess. Okay? People live their lives, they live in inconsistency, they're double-minded, they have no fulfillment, they're dissatisfied, discontent, and all of that is an evidence of futility in their thinking, that it leads to futility. It actually cannot produce what it promises to produce, and that is the consequence of folly, of thinking and reasoning apart from the knowledge of God. So, all that to say, when we engage in reasoning with the unbeliever, we are not going to allow the unbeliever to frame the argument, okay? They are, not going, they are not the ones who set the rules for how this dialogue is going to go. Why? Because they're blind and they're subject to their futility. They're completely lost in their folly. Why are we going to listen to them and let them dictate the rules of engagement, okay? According to 20, Proverbs 26.4, again, we're not going to answer a fool according to his folly, lest we be like him. We can't do that. Why can't we be like the fool in his folly? Because we're Christians. Because our minds are subject to God, and our, even our thinking is subject to God, and we have to reason his thoughts after him, okay? We're not going to allow them to set the rules. We're submissive to God's pattern of reasoning and starts with his truth, okay? Everything, the starting point of all this is God. We're here to proclaim God's truth. We're going to reason the starting point from God's truth in the fear of the Lord, and we're going to reason in a consistently Christian trajectory, Christian manner of reasoning, which is an obedience and submission to God from start to finish and all the way through, okay? Secondly, how are we going to reason with the unbeliever? First, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. But instead, next verse, Proverbs 26, 5 says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes, Okay? We're going to answer a fool as his folly deserves. That is, we're going to expose it. We're going to take the mask off of that foolish thinking, lest that person walk away from the conversation self-assured and steeled in his rebellion. We're not going to allow the unbeliever to hide behind the smokescreen of his rebellious, disobedient worldview. We're going to, try to, we're going to learn to expose the folly of his worldview. We're going to learn to expose the inconsistency of his thinking. And that's not because we're trying to win an argument. May it never be. We're, we're trying to help them convert. We're, we want to see them repent of their sin and their folly. We want to help them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We want to see God glorified and this poor sinner saved. Now, maybe at this point, some of you, your head may be spinning a bit, and you wonder, 
what you've gotten yourself into in this course. Um, I just wanted to show you a little bit of where we're going so you know that the unbeliever really has nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. We have the truth. We are connected by God's word and God's spirit to his truth, to reality as it actually is. And you have to understand that is powerful. We are not in a weak position when it comes to the world. We're in a strong position. And we should not cater to the world or cower before the world as if they have the strong position. The Bible has just shown us that they have no position at all. Their life in this life, in this world, is leading to futility. And ultimately, it's leading to futility. And they cannot give a reason for why things are the way they are. Okay? We're going to, hopefully, if time allows, get back into familiar territory, reading some Bible passages together, I promise. But for a few minutes, I want to walk you through a pattern of thinking that we're going to learn with God's help over this uh, course. And I think you'll find it very useful in discerning the pattern of unbelieving thought. For, for tonight, we just want to try to get an introduction to this. We're going to learn a pattern of, pattern of reasoning, reasoning with unbelievers, taught by a man named Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til is a Dutch uh, theologian, now in heaven. His, one of his more popular, um, or one of his brilliant students made this approach more popular. His name is Dr. Greg Bonson. He's also gone to heaven. He died young, um, like in his 50s. But I've been reading and studying and learning from Van Til and Bonson for a number of years. I've kind of reintroduced myself to it, got back into the flow of it. And I'm trying to digest a lot of this, so frankly, you don't have to, because some of it's kind of technical, especially from Cornelius Van Til. It's pretty hard. But that's my gift to you, all right? Um, you're welcome. Um, but I'm going to do my best over the length of this course to help you understand uh, and, and learn to reason with what's apologetically known as an indirect argument. Okay, it's not taking it head on, but it's actually going into the unbeliever's worldview and entering into their worldview, helping them to deconstruct it, and then bringing them over to your worldview. Okay, so it's an indirect approach. That's what I want to help you understand. And you think, you know, I'm just a simple person, simple Christian, and I'm not ever going to get any of this. Listen, stick with me. Over the course of this semester, you will get it, okay? It's not as hard as it sounds. I'm going to use some, some big, heady words and everything, but I'm going to break them down. We'll all get them together and, and go through them. And if, if at any point you're confused or lost, I mean, it depends on how lost you are. I, I will probably take all classroom to, or class time to sort out everything. But, but uh, I, you know, I'll try to help you through all this. And it's not that you have to memorize, this, this is the beauty of it, it's not that you have to memorize some approach and use an exact argument word for word and point by point. What I'm commending to you here is a pattern of thinking, a pattern of argumentation, which you can and will understand. I mean, if you've understood what I've said so far from the Proverbs, you're going to get everything, okay? Just stick with it. Why do I know that? Because all of you have God as your starting point. You have the revealed word of God and you have the Holy Spirit within you. You have a regenerate mind and you can assimilate and understand and comprehend truth. So you're going to get this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you all fear the Lord. And so you have 
the ability to grow in knowledge and instruction and then in wisdom. So by understanding a pattern here, you're going to be able to discern the unbeliever's way of reasoning. We're going to learn here, Proverbs 26.5, to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Four basic steps to this. Four basic steps. Step number one. We're going to expose the arbitrariness of the unbeliever. We're going to expose the arbitrariness of the unbeliever. Just guess at how to spell that word, okay? Arbitrariness. <laughs> Unbelievers are arbitrary in their reasoning. In other words, here's a plain way to put it. They just say whatever they want to say. <laughs> it's arbitrary. There's, no, there's nothing that nails down their opinions. They take great delight, as Proverbs says, in expressing their own opinions. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So if you listen carefully, you're going to hear that happening all the time, as I said. We need to call them on that. Hey, wait, that's an opinion, not a fact. We need to call them on it and not let them get away. Why? Get away with it. Why? Because the truth of God is at stake, and loving his holiness and his truth and proclaiming his truth is at stake, but also their souls are at stake. So you don't want to let them get away, get away with just opinionated nonsense. You hear this all the time. This is, this is an arbitrariness of the unbeliever. Here's how it goes. We all know that the Bible is just a book of myths. You ever hear that? Or, yeah, the Bible's full of errors, just the record of the opinions of men. Or, the Bible is a product of a patriarchal society. It's produced by the people in power, and the people in power, as you know, they make the rules. History is told by the victor. And that's what the Bible is, really. Or, According to science, um, the almighty, untouchable God of the modern world, according to science, we now know that the world is billions of years old. Look, whatever opinion they express, we need to throw the flag and say, expose that opinionated folly by asking them, hey, that's a very interesting opinion you just expressed there. What is the factual basis of your belief? That's simple. You can do that. It's wonderful because all you have to do is ask questions. And then you start to watch them squirm or change the subject or throw in another opinion, as if opinion on top of opinion actually answers the argument. <coughs> What's the basis of your, the factual basis of your belief? Don't let the unbeliever suck you into his prejudicial thinking. What, his, what those opinions, none of those opinions are favorable. Well, we all know that the Bible is the, you know, the authoritative word of God. That's not, he's not saying that. He's saying, we all know it's just a bunch of myths. He's revealing a prejudice in his opinion, isn't he? It's an anti-Christian prejudice. It's an anti-God prejudice. It's hostile to truth, but he's expressing that opinion as if it's established fact. We all know. Oh, really? Do we all know that? Do you know that? What have you studied? They offer no concrete evidence for their hostile opinion, and they've never actually studied the evidence for themselves that actually does exist about the Bible, about the claims of science, about what science actually has the authority to say and what the science has the authority, no, no authority to say. That is, you know, with any question of origins, you understand questions of origins are metaphysical questions. That is to say they're beyond the physical. They're 
way outside the purview of science because science is only about what's observable. And repeatable, yeah. So call them on it. That's all we're saying in this first point. Step two. So step one, what did I say it was? Expose the arbitrariness of the unbelievers. Good, thank you. Step two, we're going to expose the unbelievers' unargued philosophical bias. We're going to expose the unbelievers' unargued philosophical bias. What do I mean by that? Well, everybody has philosophical biases. Every single one of us. It's not that they're wrong for having a bias. We have biases too, but we need to expose them for what they are and recognize them. We need to understand their philosophical pre-commitments. Very few people have examined their pre-commitments. Fewer still see the need to establish them. And when you're engaging in a dialogue like, like this, it is important to expose and establish your philosophical presuppositions, your biases, biases. This isn't the only view um, operating today, but one of the most prevalent aspects of the modern worldview is an anti-supernatural bias. This is something you need to expose. When they say, people say things like this, they say, well, we all we live in the modern world. We're no longer in the pre-modern world filled with fairies and goblins and all that kind of stuff. We have an internet that propels electrical impulses around the world. We, we understand how that works, the light, you know, with, with uh, zeros and ones and all that, it's, 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 it's trans, transmitting vast sums of information. We understand how this works. Maybe that was miraculous to some pre-modern man, but we understand myths of miracles. They're simply the science fiction of the pre-modern world. How can we believe such claims, claims that are in the Bible, about Jesus healing somebody's hand or healing a paralytic or rising from the dead? What's the unargued bias? in that point of view? It's this, we know miracles are impossible. That's the unargued philosophical bias. And our response should be, oh really? We know that? Do you know that? How do you know miracles are impossible? You realize, of course, that when you say that, your reasoning has behind it an unexamined, unargued philosophical presupposition. Namely, miracles do not exist. They're going to look at you and say, okay, I'm done, I'm done. But you don't want to let them be done. Today's unbelieving minds are all under this controlling influence of all the presuppositions that are provided to them by the modern scientific paradigm, which tells them that nature, always and forever, time and eternity, works in a predictable, repeatable, law-like fashion. And so people from birth are trained to reject miracles because miracles run counter to observable experiences which have been established by the modern scientific method, right? At uh, this point, Bonson Coyley responded by saying, yeah, miracles run counter to our observable experiences. And he says, um, isn't that the point? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what miracles are. That's the definition of a miracle, is that they are not natural, but they are supernatural. Um, they're beyond that which occurs in the natural world that recurs in a repeatable, predictable, law-like fashion. And once again, if we don't throw the flag, the unbeliever has succeeded in sucking us into their worldview. 
and we're in danger of answering the fool according to his folly and becoming like him. We can't do that. Instead, we need to answer him as his folly deserves. Wait a minute. Time out. <laughs> you need to prove to me that miracles don't exist, that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. You need to prove to me that science has sufficient means to establish that and establish all of your unargued biases. Establish the origins of the universe. What, what determines, sir, ma'am, what determines the limits of possibility? What determines your limits of possibility? How do you know? For the unbeliever, it's his or her own worldview that determines what he will or will not accept as possible. He's determined ahead of time that he will not allow the Bible to determine what is and what is not possible. Because if you believe in God who created everything, then you believe in the God of the impossible. But if you reject him out of hand, then their own mind is now the source of what is possible and what is not possible. They've limited their world. It becomes very, very small, and their world becomes just a figment of their own idolatry. Okay? So the unbeliever uh, determines his metaphysics all the questions that regard the existence and the nature of God, things that can't not be observed by science. They reject the Bible because it has miracles in it. A book that records miracles as facts is not admitted as evidence in the courtroom of their thinking. They say, oh, I'm sorry, leave that at the door. Step one, expose arbitrariness. And step two, expose underlying philosophical presuppositions. Again, this isn't all we're going to do on this just tonight. We're going to do this. Over time, we're going to take time to unpack it a little bit more. So step two, expose underlying philosophical presuppositions, which has not been argued, but they take for granted. Don't let the unbeliever take them for granted, okay? Step three, look for dialectical tension. Dialectical tension. By dialectical tension, what I mean by that is referring to the tension that's inherent in their logic, their dialectical thinking, which is their logical thinking. It's the tension that's hidden beneath the surface, which they're not aware of, but you are going to reveal to them. Here's what we mean. The unbeliever's worldview, it contains inherent contradictions, which we're going to spot as we talk with them. You're going to look for, you're going to point out the inconsistencies, you're going to point out the inco incoherence of their philosophical bias. And by bringing that to the surface, you're going to make them feel it. You're going to make them grapple with it. You're going to make them wrestle with it and hopefully acknowledge that dialectical tension or that tension in their logic that this does not actually connect to this like I thought it did. That's the tension we want them to feel. Here's an example, which is the basis of the scientific reasoning, scientism, which is the religion of the modern age. The dominance of science in our world means that people have been taught to believe this, namely, that whatever we know, we know by observation. Whatever we know, we know by observation. That is a statement of belief about epistemology. Epistemology is just a fancy word for talking about how we know what we know, okay? Whatever we know, we know by observation. Whatever, and in other words, people are taught to believe from the youngest ages, they are taught to believe that all knowledge is perceptual in nature. We Whatever we know, it's known through our senses, through our five senses. If it's not known through our five senses, not knowledge. We, whatever we know, we know by observation. 
That is a self-refuting premise. The truth or the falsity of that premise is not based on perception, right? That's a statement that can't be proven to be true on the basis of perception. It's like saying, there are no absolutes. Oh, really? Absolutely? They say, well, just grant me this one exception. No, I'm not gonna grant you that exception. That is a self-refuting statement to say there are no absolutes. Because that's the only absolute. Yes? So can you say the other self-refuting statement? Sure. Whatever we know, we know by observation. How are you going to prove? You can't prove that statement by observation. That's just a statement. Whatever we know, we know by observation. What they've done is they've played a little metaphysical trick on you. They've just given you their own bias and, and stated it as if it's fact. And you just ask, whatever we know, we know by observation. All truth is perceived. All truth is perceptual. All knowledge is perceptual in nature. Really? Even that? When did you observe that? That's what you want to point out. So questions, like questions of epistemology, they're metaphysical questions. These are not physical questions. You can't test them in a lab. You can't put them under a microscope or insert them into a test tube. But the unbeliever is not going to be able to identify the inherent contradiction in their own operative presuppositions about epistemology, how we know what we know. They're not going to know that. In this case, their epistemology tells them that whatever we know, we know by observation. They just accepted that out of hand. And they're not going to be able to identify that the inherent contradiction in that statement. That's our job. That's where we're going to come in and help them. Again, indirect. We're going to go into their worldview. We're going to deconstruct it for them. And we're going to make them feel the tension, that dialectical tension. And then we're going to help them to come to truth. Okay? So we're going to, number one, expose arbitrariness. Step number two, expose underlying philosophical presuppositions that are unargued for. And number three, expose dialectical tensions in their thinking. That is, we're going to point out contradictions in their logic. Last step, step number four, we're going to help the unbeliever see that his worldview has failed to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. You want me to repeat that? Wasn't it plain on the surface of it? Yeah. We're going to help the unbeliever see that his worldview has failed to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. I mean, I, need I say more? No. Help the unbeliever see his worldview has failed to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. I'm going to unpack this down the road. So whatever you don't get tonight, just know, hey, help is coming one day. Hope I don't get hit by a bus and miss the class. So All, that one yeah, right. All the necessary truths, um, all the truths that we take for granted to live life on this planet, like laws of materi the material and the immaterial world, laws of the physical and the spiritual world, laws of reasoning and logic. Um, show, someone show me a law of logic. I mean, show it to me. Or, or show me numbers, and you'll say, well, I'll draw a number five. No, that's a representation of a number. That's not a number. That's just a representation of fiveness. 
or threeness. That, the, you know, and I can say it in Chinese or I can say it in Spanish or I can say it in English. It doesn't matter what language. I'm just representing a reality that exists whether you believe in it or not. And formulas, mathematical formulas, work whether you believe them or not. They just are. Laws of logic, laws of reasoning, laws of morality and ethics, human freedom and dignity, all these necessary truths that we take for granted in living life with each other, unbelievers lack the worldview to ex explain all that. In their worldview, they lack the preconditions of intelligibility, okay? Only Christian theism provides what we call preconditions of intelligibility, why? Because it's connected to how God actually created things. So we go back to what God actually said, and we can see that he gives us all the reasons for logic, for morality, for ethics, for human dignity, for human freedom. He gives us all the reasons. Why? Because it's based on his eternal reality. It's based on him, and he is the explanation for everything it actually is. You take him out of the picture, now you have no reason for anything. That's, what, that's a fancy way of, or a very simple way of saying they lack the preconditions of intelligibility. Now I know what you're thinking. As the infamous Captain Barbosa once said, mm, there be a lot of long words in there, Missy. We're not but humble pirates. What is it you're trying to say? It's simply this. Calm down. Here's what we're trying to say. Apart from presupposing the triune God of scripture, it's impossible to prove anything at all. Apart from presupposing the truth about God, it's impossible to prove anything at all. If you do not bow the knee to God, apart from thinking and reasoning according to his revealed world, any and every worldview without exception is demonstrably and patently false. Okay, that is what presuppositionalism is all about. That is what, well, I mentioned it this morning, the transcendental argument for the existence of God, that's what it's all about. That's a, just a, again, a fancy way of saying, without, we, we are going to prove the existence of God by the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, apart. <laughs> it sounds like you're mumbling. I'm, I'm not hearing and understand what you're saying. Here it is. Okay, so here it is. Ready? Apart from presupposing, that is, suppose from the start, apart from supposing from the very beginning the truth about the triune God, it's impossible to prove anything at all. If you don't start with God, nothing makes sense. Okay? So, the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Transcendental means it transcends. Okay? Transcends. Here's the argument for the existence of God. We prove the existence of God. Not just any God, not, not monotheism, not, any, not, not just deity. We prove the existence of the triune God of Scripture. 
revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ, we prove the existence of God by the impossibility of the contrary. That is to say, without the existence of God, it is impossible to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. Without ex God's existence, apart from Christian theism, it's impossible to prove anything at all. That is to say, like, if they say God doesn't exist, then say, okay, and you punch them in the face and take their wallet. And they say, hey, that wasn't right. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you just use the term like right and wrong. But you said God doesn't exist. Show me where you get your rules of right and wrong. Well, they're socially, you know, they're just, they're just socially constructed rules that we all live by. Um, not in my social spheres. <laughs> so, I'm going to punch you in the nose and take your wallet. Because I can do that in my world. In, yeah, it's, it's effective up to a point. And then you just lose that person, you know. You just never see him again. Not that I've tried it. But you've got $24. Yeah, that's right. Chick-fil-A, here I come. So without God's existence, without the triune God, apart from Christian theism, it's impossible to prove anything at all. And that's because Christianity is true. It is the only truth and all other systems are false. Okay? That is what we mean when we say Christianity is true. We don't mean um, it's just true to me. Like this works for me. Um, it's subjectively true. I feel it's true. That's not what we mean. When we say Christianity is true, we mean that it's absolutely true. And we mean it's universally true. And so everybody must bow the knee to God. That's what we mean when we say Christianity is true. It is truth and the only truth. Christianity is true. Every non-Christian way of looking at the world is false. That's because it's error and it's darkness and it leads to absolute futility. That's how the Gentiles think and live, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. And that is how we are commanded not to think. Paul starts out, Ephesians 4, 17, do not walk any longer like the Gentiles walk, right? Don't think like they think. Don't reason like they reason. Don't live like they live. So we're, we dare not do it in any part of our life, and especially in our evangelistic approach to people, especially in our apologetic approach to people, and that's why I've ended here with the transcendental argument for God's existence. We can prove the existence of God by the impossibility of the contrary. We need, and we do, start with God. We love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And if we do that, we're going to also bow the knee in our apologetics and evangelism and call other people to do the same. That's what we're after. And that's what I wanted you to see here at the outset of this course, that we start and end with God. When we bow the knee in our apologetics and evangelism, we're consistent with the message of calling everyone else to do the same. God is the gospel. I ended last time with 1 Peter 3.18. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did he do that? Then he might bring us to God. He's, he is reconciling us to God. He is connecting us back with the true starting point of all knowledge and understanding. So it's not just, the, the gospel message is not just about how to get into heaven. It's, that's just the starting point. That's the commencement. 
And it is a beautiful story. But we need to understand what it's for. Okay, so take a couple aspirin. And uh, let's encourage our hearts with some passages of Scripture, all right? Reading some Scripture. Does that sound like a good lifeline here at the end? After all this transcendental preconditions of intelligibility, I can't understand it. All right. When, um, let, let, me, uh, let me get some loud people to read some Bible verses. So if you're a loud person, can you raise your hand? Thank you, Doug. Hey, come on, no, no, I'm tired. This isn't the brashness of the woman folly. Okay, let me put it this way. If you have a strong, authoritative voice of power, will you raise your hand? All right. So let me, let's go through it. Romans 1, 16 and 17. You look up that one. Brett, you've got 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 15. Come on, I need more hands. All right, Alyssa, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Callie. All right, let's give you, that's too long. Let me give you this one. Colossians 1, 3 to 6. Who's next? You raise your hand after yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't be outdone by a girl, especially, especially a grade schooler. All right, so Ryan, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Josh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. Who else? Yeah. Rob, uh, Titus 1, 1 to 3. Who's next? Wayne. Where's Wayne? I've been voluntold. Second <laughs> Peter 1, 3 to 4. Who's next? Brett. Let's do 1 John 1, 1 to 3. And, uh, and I'll get the last one. Okay, Revelation 21. Okay, when you... So you guys are getting those passages turning there. When you think about doing evangelism, when you're proclaiming the gospel with somebody, and this sounds pejorative to say it this way, but let me say it this way. What is the bait? What is, what is the reward that you're offering them in that evangelistic encounter? Huh? After all, it's going to cost them everything, right? Okay? You're asking them to trade their life for this thing that you're offering them. So it better be worth it. What do people stand to gain by taking your deal and embracing the gospel? Salvation, eternal life. Salvation, eternal life. Who else? New life. Truth, new life. Okay. All right, good. You want to have a happy life? Here, take this. Sacrifice everything. I'll give you a happy life. Yeah, right. And you said, well, they can keep their wallet. <laughs> Only if they answer that question correctly. <laughs> so here's a, here's a follow-up question to that. What is the gospel about? What is its main subject? Okay. We can also ask, what do you stand to gain or lose by accepting the gospel or rejecting the gospel? Okay. So let's read, with those questions in mind, let's read, starting with Romans 1. 16 and 17. Go ahead and read that. Belt it out. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, good. 
So what is offered in the gospel? The power of God, the righteousness of God. That's what we hear. Uh, Brett, I think you're next. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Okay, bring us into whose presence? God's presence. God's presence. That's what we're being offered in the gospel. What's the next one? Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Who's got that? Yeah, but listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear who is the subject of all those verbs? Who's driving the action? God is. God the Father. Christ is the mediator. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is how we appropriate all those promises. Christ is how we're reconciled. But God is the one who chose and elected, predestined. He's the one who created us to be holy and blameless before him in his own presence. God, 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 God is the subject of all those verbs. Callie, you've got the next one, Colossians 1, 3 to 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Great reading. And such powerful and yet dainty. <laughs> um, thank you, it's beautiful. And uh, again, again, this, this gospel is driven by God himself. I, I, I know you guys were, I just noticed the time. I think that clock is dead wrong. But, um, but that's my version of reality. <laughs> so I'm going to close. I, we'll, we'll pick this discussion up next time and, and use it to introduce. But I, I'm going to close with this section. It's Revelation 21. Um, listen, listen to this in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who? Who will wipe every tear? God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Again, we always think of Christ being that kind of gentle, tender 
This is God the Father. This is power incarnate right here. And he's wiping every tear away from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, who's, who's seated on the throne? It's God. It's God who's seated on the throne. Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, write, these, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We need to understand that our starting point is with God because our ending point is with God. We have, by Christ, been brought back to God. We've been reconciled to God. God is the gospel. Theology is what drives us. And you know what's going to make us the best evangelists and the best apologists is when we think God's thoughts after him. When we are so passionately joyful over the God that we know that we can't help but speak about him. And we can't help but reason according to his truth. When we connect with that reality and start to reason in what he actually said, take what he actually said at face value. I mean, it's an unstoppable force. Imagine God stepping down from his throne and reasoning with the unbeliever. He's going to put up with any nonsense. Any unargued philosophical bias? You think he's going to put up with any of that? Well, God, we know that your book's a bunch of myths and, you know, baseless, you know, opinions of men. Yeah, it's like flick that little ant away, you know. Like. <laughs> we have his truth. We can speak and reason according to his truth. I'm going to forego the hymn and spare you. Um, well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time we've had tonight in your word. We thank you for the encouragement it provides. We're thankful also for just a powerful uh, evangel and a, and a powerful apologetic that you have given us just by understanding the truth of your word and by exposing the, well, the, just the false opinions of what is falsely so-called knowledge that's all around us. It really does animate the whole spirit of the power of the air and the world that we live in and inhabit, we just ask that you would give us uh, a strength of understanding and help us to be bold and courageous because you are our God. We thank you for the truth of your word and the fact that you have saved us and forgiven us of all of, your sin, of, all of our sin and that you have, um, in Christ, united us to him and you brought us to yourself. We're so thankful for that. Let us never grow used to that message. Let us never take it for granted and let us commit ourselves to obeying you every single day. We love you and commit ourselves to your truth in Jesus' name.